Welcome to Chemical Reactions. And this is the last of our podcasts about European chemicals produced by Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels. I'm Chris Davis, a senior advisor and formerly a long-standing member of the European Parliament's Environment Committee. Well, it's a case of last but not least, because today I'm joined by Bjorn Hansen, the executive director of the European Chemicals Agency. Welcome, Bjorn. Thank you very much. I'm very, very pleased to be here. Thanks. Well, I want to know, are you in the front seat or driving from the back seat? Because the European Commission has published its new chemical strategy for sustainability. And I really want to know what role is the agency playing in driving the agenda forward? We're in a sense in the back seat, but we're also in the front seat. Depends on how you look at it. Of course, when it comes to developing policy, we're on the back seat. We sit and wait until policy tells us what to do. On the other hand, developing policy that can't be carried out, can't be implemented, can't be, doesn't hit the ground, uh, makes little sense. So, of course, we're there to advise uh, where policy uh, can actually uh, be carried out on the ground and where not. Now, the new strategy says that chemicals are absolutely essential, but we must ensure that they do no harm to health or the environment. And we want to substitute risky ones for better ones. And we want to encourage innovation and have a successful European chemicals industry. Now, all of this sounds remarkably like the comments we heard from the Commission 20 years ago when REACH was launched. So where did the old plant fail? I think that the challenges we have are just bigger. I don't think necessarily that something failed. As always, you start on an endeavor like, like REACH and other chemicals legislation, and you start out thinking that you would achieve something by, by after 15 years. I think we've not quite achieved what we wanted after 15 years, but we're well on our way of getting there. So what is it that has changed? It's not so much the legislation, what we're trying to obtain with that legislation. It is that we have uh, a realization in the much bigger picture of things that we need some deep changes to reach not only the objectives that, say, a chemical strategy sets out in terms of chemical safety, but also uh, many societal challenges. And I think the two major societal challenges which we have, which goes beyond safety of chemicals, is climate neutrality by 2050 and its circular economy. And neither of those two can be achieved with the chemistry and the chemicals we have today. So basically, the societal demands that the Green Deal puts on Europe can only be met if chemicals industry changes its chemicals that it manufactures in order to meet those demands. And then comes on top of that the uh, safety angle that, of course, we want when we have to go out and develop new chemicals to try to get even better chemicals out of it. So that's how I see the The demands on the chemistry, the chemicals uh, that society needs has changed. And that's why we are in the situation we're in today uh, with a new chemical strategy. Okay, lots to discuss. Let me bring in James Stevens, who's the Managing Director of Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels. Because, James, you've been working on chemicals policy for, well, for at least a decade. The new strategy, is it progress or does it just leave the industry with a whole host of problems to face? Hi, uh, yeah, thanks, Chris. I think, yeah, I mean, I think I'd echo something what you said. I, you, you and MEP at the time, I was a mere intern in the Parliament back in uh, 2000, 2001, when the white paper, paper was going through. And clearly much has changed. So I think Bjorn is, is a right to point out that, you know, REACH is working. And from a regulatory standpoint, I think it's working. And 
I used to joke that it's a bit like an Airbus A380 reach. You looked at it and you thought, my God, it's so big, it, it's never going to fly. And yet it does fly. And, and that's largely due to people like Bjorn who kind of built it as it was flying and people in member states and industry. I think what's disappointing actually about the, about the current thing, and I think I, I'd, echo, I, I'd echo some of the comments from industry actors here, um, is I think it is a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, but, but before I go into that, I think, I think more than that, it shows perhaps that the industry itself has, has not managed to do something or communicate something properly over the last 20 years. Because as you rightly point out, Chris, a lot of the kind of criticism in there, you would have heard about the safety of chemicals, about the need for the industry to change. It is probably the same as, as you would have heard 10, 20 years ago, despite the fact that the industry has got behind reach as a programme. So I think there's clearly still a trust aspect missing, I think, in society that, that probably needs to be addressed, or at least parts of Brussels that need to be addressed. I think it's also, as you say, the, the signalling of, of, the, of the recent strategy from the Commission is kind of worrying. You know, there is reference to the need for the chemical industry within the Green Deal, but then if you look at the content of what's in that paper, um, you know, if I'm sat there in a boardroom of a large chemical company and I read that, I, I'm not sure I'm looking at Europe and saying this is the place that I'm going to want to make the Green Deal happen, if I'm perfectly honest. I think I think that's a bit of a shame in terms of, I know I'm going to come on to, I guess, what's in some of the, the latest debates, but I think just that signalling aspect, I would have hoped for a much more positive signal from the Commission about the role of the chemical industry and where we're going together, given some of the challenges that Bjorn mentioned. Bjorn, what's the reaction of the chemicals industry to these new proposals? I mean, you're in the front line, you're dealing with these people every day. Yeah, I mean, what we're dealing with every day is the work under the current legislation. And of course comes the chemical strategy now. I don't see in day-to-day life their reaction. But what I can observe is what has the commission in its totality been writing about the need for change in our manufacturing industry uh, and um, in our consumption patterns in Europe, which is maybe not captured uh, completely in the in the chemical strategy, but it still is mapped out in the various other pieces of, of communications from the Commission, which also cover the chemicals industry. And I mean, there you do have the enormous challenges of climate neutrality. Chemicals industry is, is one of, if not the uh, highest consu- energy consuming industry in, in Europe. And you can't get to climate neutrality by only working on the, on the supply side. You also need to change the demand side. And then you have the circular economy challenge. So if you see it, at least in the big context, I I do see a clear, uh, I mean, I see it in the chemical strategy, but at least you see it uh, in the big context that there's a deep transition in industry needed, manufacturing industry, including uh, chemicals industry. And there's a need for emphasizing and extorting completely our data in a, a digital uh, agenda, which can support whatever objectives are in the chemical strategy, or let's say, which are articulated expressly in the chemicals uh, strategy. When I talk with industry, I also think just to to close that one off. I mean, in essence, when I talk to industry, there are two different types of industries. There are the industries. Well, I should almost say there are two types of conversations that you have with industry. You have a generic conversation when you're not talking about a specific chemical. And there, I think, chemical industry in Europe completely recognizes the need for significant changes in order 
to meet the demands of society, European society, but also to meet the boundaries that our planet uh, has. It's always when you get down to then discussing a specific chemical that industry, let's say that that positive joint objective discussion gets more complex <laughs> and more difficult. And I think that uh, that bit will stay for a very long time. But we need to focus on the uh, part of the conversation, which is where do we need to go? Where must we go? And what changes are needed to get there? And Bjorn, I think, I mean, I think for me, that's, that's the missed opportunity here, to be honest, because, you know, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's those two levels, having worked on, on many kind of specific product related issues over the last 20 years you know clearly whenever there's a regulatory process you know that's looking at a specific chemical the the business unit leader of that specific bit of chemistry within the company is going to want to protect the PNL. clearly that's going to be the case i think you know the, the bit that i will observe is that you know having worked with a bunch of companies on reach related matters whether it's restrictions or authorizations is is that quite often you know, the, the people dealing with the reach regulation are in, in more in the compliance space. So I think companies looked at looked at chemical regulation over the last 10, 15 years and actually looked at it from a how do we manage the complexity of the system, which is by its nature complex, right? And, and, and they looked at it at kind of senior exec levels and said, well, that seems like something I need to push down my organisation given the complexity. So I think what we ended up with was lots of box ticking. Um, instead of a kind of strategic flexion within in, within individual companies about how they adapt and evolve their, their company and its contribution, as you're suggesting, Bill and White. So I think that's the bit I miss from this. It's the, the latest strategy from the Commission seems to be more of the same. So there's still more things we need to do at a kind of regulatory level. And instead of elevating it up to a discussion I would have hoped we would have had, which was kind of putting... You know, as the Commission has done really well in other areas, how do we put like strategic value chains at the heart of this? How do we provide the certainty to industrial actors to invest in Europe and deliver us the kind of green, sustainable chemistry that you've been talking about a lot and in your work about sustainable chemicals? How do we get them to actually do that? And I think that's much more likely to be done by kind of broader political signalling than it is by, by listing, you know, two pages of annex of different regulatory measures that we're going to take. Yeah, I perfectly agree that REACH as such has not been uh, a, a topic of boardroom discussions um, after uh, REACH adoption. And in a sense, I can understand what's happened. It's, it's very much what you described, that it turned out to be seen as being a very complicated beast. And it took quite some time for everybody to master it. For those who designed it, it's, it's rather simple. It's all about how can industry show that their chemicals are safe uh, in a way that, that people are convinced that, that they know what they're doing. And for that, you need all sorts of little technical stuff. But that's the big, big, was the big selling argument. And it's first been, been coming a bit back, uh, unfortunately, due to negative press uh, on, on, on reach back into the boardrooms about dossiers not being compliant and that, that's kicked off the negative angle of REACH not fulfilling its objectives. But the element that REACH can be used uh, by companies to demonstrate that they actually have the best chemicals uh, in place for specific uses, I don't think that that has been boxed by all the boardrooms and used as an active selling argument. And indeed, thereby also maybe not having in the companies a dynamics of actively following that agenda.
agenda and more turning it into a compliance machinery. How are you going to reduce the burden on industry? Because the new strategy does accept that the current regulatory framework creates inconsistencies and unnecessary burdens. And if we want the European chemicals industry to thrive, then surely there needs to be a massive simplification of all the rules. Well, I, I think that there's a, a enormous amount of chemicals legislation out there in Europe, and a lot of it is not finely tuned to fit with each other. There are quite some significant differences in very basic principles in how these chemicals legislations function. Who has the burden of proof is different. What data are you allowed to use? Are you allowed to use animal data or are you not allowed to use animal data? And how far does socioeconomic analysis or uh, things like the critical use play a role in the implementation of the legislation? All of that varies and is very different between pieces of legislation. So therefore, I can perfectly understand why industry says, look, I comply with one piece of legislation for my material, which contains a specific chemical, but then I don't comply in another piece of legislation simply because the technical rules are different. And I think that that's the place where we can make a significant simplification for industry so that if they manufacture a chemical and it's shown to be safe or rather the hazards are fixed in a certain way, then they're fixed like that for all pieces of legislation. And if they are safe with a certain type of exposure, then with that type of exposure, they're safe everywhere so that we can get more consistency and also a lot more efficiency into the whole machinery. That's where I definitely think that there's a lot to be gained to help industry also from their side have, a, have an easier life to meet the demands, but also for them to utilize the, the forerunning position that we have in Europe with our legislation to develop and use chemicals as safe as anybody else in this whole world. One of the themes of the new strategy is to take out a more generic approach towards chemicals regulation. And at the commissioner's press conference launching it, it was said that there are hundreds of groups of chemicals for which substitutes can easily be found. Now, that's an awful lot of chemicals that might be banned in the next few years. Let's say in, in your question, you have two, two, two elements. You have this, uh, uh, what's very often, I think, wrongly formulated as, as, as hazard versus risk or generic versus specific risk um, assessment. And then there's the other one that when you move to, to groups, it's all about banning everything in a group. On the generic versus specific, I, I actually see it as a continuum. Uh, one of the most uh, successful European so-called hazard-based approaches, which the whole world has taken over and actually absolutely nobody contests, is classification and labeling, the globally harmonized system. It's one of the most successful and best systems of that. So we can't go about saying that doing risk management based on hazard is wrong because it's our biggest success in, the, in, in, in chemical management in influencing the, the, the global agenda is exactly doing that. The whole question is, how far can you go down that route? And there are many routes that you can go down that way, which makes sense. It makes sense not to sell a Category 1B carcinogen to a consumer because the likelihood that somebody is going to do something which is not intended with that chemical is very high. And very few individual chemicals are really needed by the consumer. They will have an alternative that performs a little bit worse. But what does that really matter compared to the risk? So there are many things there on this generic and specific risk assessment, which for me, or uh, risk 
based uh, risk management, which for me is actually a continuum. It's not a one or the other. And you should simply go as far as is necessary in your assessment to demonstrate the need for risk management. If I go to the grouping, for me, the fundament is simple, is if you have a group of chemicals which are structurally similar, then very often they also share some sort of uh, similarities in terms of their hazard profile, but also in terms of their use and also in terms of how they can be produced. Normally, if a production site produces one chemical, then you can fuddle or fidge around with the production um, site in order to produce a number of chemicals of similar chemical structure. So basically, if you look at at the world in that way, that the hazards, the use and the production possibilities are always within groups of chemicals, then it makes sense simply to assess the whole group in order to determine, indeed, if all the chemicals in a group uh, should not be used or more likely what happens more often, you actually identify those substances in the group which cause the least harm, but also could be supported in a continued use. So in a sense, the grouping approach you can use in order to find the best substitutes. So it's not always about banning. It's also about figuring out which chemicals are the most sustainable for society. James, you come in. I think it's interesting what Bjorn says on that point. And, you know, I, I think people, would, I think we all recognise that CLP has, has been a success as a risk management tool, particularly in the, in the context of protecting workers um, through, through labelling. I think where I think people have more of a problem is is then the automaticity of uh, which has been introduced, Chris, by people like yourself in in, in the legislature of, of adding hazard based bans into into product legislation later down the line uh, and linking that back to, to classification labelling. I mean, I, I'm kind of split on this, if I'm perfectly honest. So so I, I kind of like Bjorn's normal patter about hazard and risk rather than hazard versus risk. And putting those two things together seems to be a good way of prioritising chemicals for regulatory action and then looking at them properly. Um, I also actually have a little bit of sympathy, um, if I'm thinking from a business hat, for more certainty, as you were saying, because how do we make more certainty? And actually part of me says, you know, hazard-based bans and, and knowing which endpoints are going to have regulatory action against them should give the kind of certainty required for business leaders to make investment decisions. However, on the other hand, I know, you know, we're continually classifying more and more chemicals. That probably means there's more and more science coming out there and more and more questions. So it is a moving target rather than a kind of end date on on hazard classification. Um, So so that, I think all of that, you know, leads me to questions. And then I look at more generally the question of of hazard versus risk. And I look at it from a consumer and citizen standpoint. Um, And I think of what I learned about the difference between hazard and risk um, over recent years and wonder if, it, if we're now dealing with, with risks that are infinitesimally small. And then, I suppose, finally on this, I think there's a, in, from the Commission's strategy, there's, a, there's also a political question, I think, and it probably comes back to your former colleagues, Chris, which is, I look at some of the things proposed in there about extending these, these kind of general risk assessment and risk management measures. And, you know, I look at what the legislature agreed to back in the REACH regulation, and I kind of look at that and think it probably requires a legislative change. And I know everyone's for keeping any reach um, revision as, as tight and focused as possible. It's about the, what burden of risk we're, we're willing to accept as society. And that doesn't seem like something that regulators should be deciding without our elected MEPs and our elected national governments having a good view at it and a good look at it in an in a ordinary legislative procedure. 
let me pick up on that. Um, Bjorn, what are the chemicals that really cause you concern? I mean, what I see behind this call for consumer goods is, is the following, that what I was saying before, I should maybe have specified very clearly. It's when you talk about selling a chemical or a mixture. So this basically means a liquid to the consumer. Then what I was saying is valid because exposure is simply always there. Now, when you get to articles, so these are hard things. It's your keyboard. It's your table. It's your glass. Then uh, initially, the thought is, well, chemicals don't leach. They don't come out very often. And what we have seen uh, over the last 10 years of or 20 years of experience is that, well, they actually do leach very often. They leach in small quantities, but they do leach. And therefore, I think it's a very uh, correct question to ask is, well, with the experience of the last 20 years, can we identify the chemicals that if they leach, even in, in smaller quantities, we are not very happy about the safety of them? If you turn to, to this PFOS or PFAS strategy, of course, there's uh, uh, the part in the, in the document, which is clearly political, is, is the desire to ban all PFAS based uh, except for critical uses still to be, be defined. But from a scientific perspective, then PFAS is, is a very, it is worrying because every one of the PFAS chemicals for which we have data, and admittedly, it's very few, but every one, they do turn out to be a problem. They turn out to be a problem because they are very, very persistent in the environment, which basically means you have to prevent its leaching. But many of the uses of the PFAS chemicals for which we have information, again, admittedly, this is very, very few, they're exactly used in uses that ensure that they are leached into the environment. So basically, this here is a group of chemicals which seem to share persistence as a, as a, a problem or as a concern. They have very different toxicities, again, those that we know something about. But they do have a significant toxicity, which, again, is worrying. So then comes this issue of how much. And, and that's what I see is the policy debate is there are 4000 of these chemicals. If we start banning one after the other, then there's almost an infinite opportunity to, to shift to other PFAS chemicals, which then eventually might turn out to be a problem. So how do you tackle this? And the best way to tackle it is in a group of chemicals. Now. The difficulty is going to be is setting the threshold as to how much information do you need as a regulator and do you therefore want from us in an agency uh, in order to justify uh, indeed what it is that pol the policy demand in the chemical strategy to ban all except certain uses. But I can, I can see the logic uh, because for the PFAS, like I said, all the uses that we know for the very few ones that exist that, that we know enough about, they leach all of them. You, you mentioned critical uses there, which is, I think is interesting when you're taking a grouping approach to PFAS, and we might have divergent views on that. But that, that critical use piece, and I think the, the commission talked about essential uses and refer back to the Montreal, Montreal Protocol. It's not defined anywhere in reach, is it? It's not. It's not already a thing that the legislators agreed to, or, or am I mistaken? No, absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I'm referring it to as a, as a policy 
term that needs defining from a policy area, and then we can we can implement. In effect, criticality of use is indirectly defined in reach in our methodology that we apply for socioeconomic analysis. So let's say we don't we avoid uh, using that word, uh, but we do assess um, through uh, measured in monetary terms how important a specific use of a chemical is for society versus how big is the negative impact in monetary terms of that use of that chemical. So in, in essence, we have a number of the tools that help the regulator today to decide whether a use should continue of a chemical or not. Uh, it's just not called critical use. The difference with this critical uh, use concept building on the Montreal uh, Protocol is that it no longer looks at the economic angle of it. So it takes out the economic aspect of what we do today and basically looks at uh, mainly um, is, is the chemical helping uh, save lives or improve livelihoods in, 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 in Europe without looking at the economic consequences of banning a chemical on, on a specific company or, or, or industry. So it's narrowing down the conditions for allowing a use on the market from what we do today in REACH. Bjorn, just one last question to you. One substance, one assessment. That's regarded as a key point of the new strategy. Is this actually a power grab by the European Chemicals Agency? <laughs> No, uh, it, it, it's more of an efficiency alert, efficiency and, and consistency alert from ICA. Uh, that's, that's our take on it. The term one substance, one assessment, that's the commission's term. It's part of their strategy that they need to find a way to implement and also define what is. Our input to that is that we see just a lot of inefficiencies between various pieces of legislation. And if I start with the biggest one, uh, then it is that, or not the biggest one, but one obvious one, is that uh, EFSA, EMA, and, and ICA, so the Food Safety Agency, the Medicines Agency, and the Chemicals Agency, we were all created as a consequence of the mad cow disease, which basically had um, the, the decision within the commission that scientific assessments, risk assessments, and also in the case of REACH, um, the scientific and technical risk management options analysis should be outsourced to an independent agency. And there we just see that the commissions did well with pharmaceuticals, veterinary medicines, plant protection products, food contact materials, and everything that we do, food additives. But there's still a lot of legislation in the commission which didn't pull that one through. So there, in terms of power grab, I see together with my two sister agencies that it's simply just logical consequence of the mad cow disease outbreak and the political consequences that came after that, that we should be doing the scientific assessment on chemicals um, rather than having what we have now. If you look at the commission structure, you have still scientific committees which are being uh, have a secretariat, part of a policy di director general. You have member states within a policy context provide scientific evidence and, and, and opinions to the, to the commission. And then you even have contractors which are under contract to do the scientific gatherings of information to underpin commission uh, decisions. And that's where I think it just makes sense to, to, to use the three agencies you got and allocate the pieces of legislation 
uh, to us to uh, give the scientific advice. One of many elements that I would see in, in one substance, one assessment, but that's one of them. If you call that a power grab, it's a power grab. For me, like I said, it just makes uh, total sense uh, to, to outsource this to us. Um, it makes, ultimately, you, you get synergies because we can uh, build on existing infrastructure. And the most important argument for me is you can get more consistency between legislation, which is good for the consumer. It's good for industry because it increases predictability and ultimately it saves money. And, and Bjorn, will you, will you have the resources to do that? I mean, if you look at the MFF and the, and the budget lines that are coming out that we're discussing currently, are the resources behind you for ECHO upscaling? Because I'm guessing you'll need more staff to be able to do those kind of things, will you? Yes, that, that's the consequence. If we, we're, we're basically uh, doing the maximum possible with the resources we've got. Over the last years, my predecessor started that. Uh, I'd say I've, I've finished that in the last two and a half years. We've significantly increased the numbers uh, of outputs that we have while still reducing the staff that we got. Um, and basically now we're, we're at the point that we, we can't increase anymore and we don't have any fat left uh, to do uh, other stuff. So indeed, if the commission wants us to do all of this, we're, of course, more than happy to do it. But it either means more resources or it means that we have to do less in, in the current work. And Bjorn, you are entirely happy that we really can have a safer environment, better health and a really prosperous European chemicals industry. Is that so? I absolutely think that it's possible, but it requires a societal, it's a societal challenge. What we need is to stimulate innovation, and innovation doesn't get stimulated itself. That is also something that authorities, an agency like ours, but also the commission, funding, research funding agencies, etc., etc., all need to pull in the same direction. If they do, then I think it's a challenge that we can meet. We have uh, now about 30 years to get there, 30 years of continuous efforts to develop uh, the right chemicals that we really need and make sure that they uh, are, are put to use without being uh, undermined from, uh, from uh, inferior products from outside of Europe. I think that is doable. You've been listening to me. That's Chris Davis. As I've been talking with Bjorn Hansen, Executive Director of the European Chemicals Agency, and with James Stevens, Managing Director of Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels. I hope you found the podcast of interest, and you can find a link to all our Chemicals Reactions podcasts by turning to the Rudd Pedersen website. Thanks for listening. <laughs>